um, Wayne Lennox, right? That's right, Bob. This, well, well, first off, connection with the podcast. This is something. I mean, all these people are from all over the place. They are. They are. We. This is our second conference, as you know. I, I did read your online uh, blog last year, uh, and I know that you visited the conference. I, I unfortunately could only do the first day of the conference last year because there was another, there was an archaeological conference in northern New York that I attended. Uh, but this year I'm here for the, for the full four days. That's archaeologist Wayne Lennig, who lives in Fort Johnson, New York, one of the tour bus leaders and speakers at the second annual American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference. The event attracted over 200 people this year who attended talks held at Fulton Montgomery Community College in the town of Mohawk, just outside of Johnstown. The attendees went on bus tours of revolutionary war sites in the Mohawk Valley, feasted on a colonial-era banquet at the historic Van Alstyne House in Canajahari, and relaxed at an opening reception at the Fort Plain Museum. Brian Mack and Norm Bolin of the Fort Plain Museum organized the conference again this year. Wayne Lennig, by the way, has been doing archaeological work at the Fort Plain site since he was 14 years old. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. This episode features interviews with three speakers of the recent conference, J.L. Bell, author of The Road to Concord, How Four Stolen Cannon Ignited the Revolutionary War, Don Hagist, editor of the online journal of the American Revolution. We begin with Edward Lengel, author of First Entrepreneur, How George Washington Built His and the Nation's Prosperity. We're at the American Revolution and the Mohawk Valley Conference. I'm Bob Cutmore, and we're talking with Ed Langell. How you doing? How are you doing, Bob? Glad. Okay, except it is Ed Langell, isn't it? Ed, Ed Langell. But Ed Langell had a very interesting talk and has written a book about George Washington as an entrepreneur. Even though your um, undergraduate years, or, or your graduate years, you studied like British history, wrote about the Irish potato famine, right? But uh, how did you get involved in doing Washington? Well, I was working as a graduate student. I needed the money at this project called the Papers of George Washington at the University of Virginia on uh, his papers of the Revolutionary War and his retirement. Uh, and after I'd been there for a while and I was about to get my PhD, they offered me a full-time job. Uh, so uh, I thought that would be a good, prudent thing to do. And uh, stayed with the project and have shifted my focus to Washington and the Revolutionary War and made a career from that. Well, sounds good. Uh, certainly George Washington's a very popular and important figure. In an earlier book you wrote about Washington, General George Washington, A Military Life was the finalist for the George Washington Book Prize. That's right. That was my first uh, trade publication, and it is a book that covers Washington as a soldier from his early days in the French and Indian War uh, up through the Revolutionary War and then beyond even as president and the Quasi-War, uh, 1798-99. A lot of people don't realize he died on active military service. And now the, the, the book that you've uh, written, First Entrepreneur, how George Washington built his and the nation's prosperity. Uh, I did hear your uh, talk, and uh, fascinating, in, in, his, in his early... Well, you said something to the effect that Washington's greatest fear 
uh, first I thought you said was death. I said, well, I'm pretty afraid of death. <laughs> but you said what you actually said was his greatest fear was being in debt. That's right. It was, I think, right next to Thomas Jefferson among those things that he dreaded the most. Uh, it was something that, that came from uh, early childhood and what his mother uh, taught him, uh, that debt was the source of ruin, personal ruin, and also ruin for families, communities, and, and countries as well. So he, he feared that with a passion throughout his life. And he married a wealthy woman. Pardon my ignorance. Was Washington married before he married Martha? Uh, no, he was not. That was his first marriage. So he married a wealthy woman. Married a wealthy woman. She had been married before. She was a widow, um, and uh, Martha da- Martha Dandridge Custis, and uh, she was reputedly the wealthiest uh, widow in Virginia. A very eligible lady, uh, still quite young, uh, in her twenties, um, but she had uh, four children, two of whom had survived to adulthood. Uh, but she had a very wealthy estate. And you say that uh, she, you know, inspected Washington, if you will, and she thought he was a kind of a sober, diligent person. I think he was a good match for her, as well as her being a good match for him, um, because she did have children that she wanted to be cared for, a legacy that she wanted passed down. And she was herself a very intelligent, very sober, very, very uh, dutiful woman. Uh, And she expected George to be the same way, and he was. Again, we're talking with Edward Lengel, uh, his book, First Entrepreneur. It's about George Washington. One thing you say he did that um, was wise uh, economically is he switched from growing tobacco to wheat at Mount Vernon, their estate. That was a huge decision, and it it absolutely transformed his fortunes. It was the basis of his wealth. Uh, Tobacco was, for many reasons, it was very uh, expensive to grow. It was very labor-intensive, and uh, it caused uh, him to fall into debt, like for many other Virginia planters, because it, it was sold within the British colonial system. So moving over to wheat gave him a degree of economic freedom. He could sell in his own account. He could earn cash instead of credit. And it allowed his, himself and the people in his estate to become self-sufficient. Uh, and they could grow and produce uh, their own food, their own clothing, uh, and everything else, and sell it as well. Uh, so it was a huge decision to make. Maybe doesn't have uh, to do directly with uh, Washington's uh, entrepreneurship or his uh, focus on economics, but he was, before the American Revolution, he had been in the French and Indian War, and you say that that conflict, uh, seeing, you know, firsthand conflict, and not as the general, but, you know, as something much further down the chain, uh, really impacted his outlook. His uh, friend and aide, David Humphreys, many, many years later, wrote the beginnings of a biography of George Washington with George Washington. And in there, Washington wrote that he would never forget a certain battle of the Monongahela, July 9th, 1755, when he had to lead a shattered army off the field. Uh, he said he never forgot the cries of the wounded that night uh, and the, the suffering and the, the loss of warfare. Um, and, of course, he was, he was himself shot at. Uh, he was in the middle of some very intense firefights. Uh, his coat had bullet holes through it in several places. He had four horses shot from under him. Uh, so he was a combat veteran, and it, it profoundly affected the way he looked at life. 
And also, you, you t- told the story that, you know, during the war, during the Revolutionary War, as he's commanding the troops, he was very uh, harsh on those troops that would, uh, for example, pillage the neighborhoods, you know, uh, go in and steal stuff from um, property owners. He, he, was, he, he believed that that's what they were fighting for. Yeah, he wanted to show that the army was there for the people and it was of the people and that it was fighting on their behalf for the same rights and the same cause. And so he thought that any uh, predation by soldiers on civilians would completely undermine uh, their ability to continue to fight. He realized if the people did not support the army, the army could not survive. And maybe one more point, at least. Uh, after he was uh, president, uh, you say he took a look at population theories or demographics and so forth. Uh, America had a young um, life force, I don't say workforce, but uh, and a lot of children being born, young, a lot of young men. And you say you had a different take than a lot of people on why, in a way, Washington started to turn against slavery, although he was a slave owner. He, first of all, as far as the population was concerned, he expected there would be a population boom that would be fueled by immigration to the United States, and he expected that to transform our economy. Uh, So far as slavery was concerned, much of the reason he turned against that was his understanding of the labor principle, that um, a person needs to have a motivation to work um, for their own for their own benefit, they need to enjoy the fruits of their own labor. And if uh, they're enslaved, that they don't have that motivation, and that it corrupts them. It corrupts them morally, and it corrupts the people who force them into that system. Well, again, thank you for talking with us, Edward Lengel. The book is How George Washington Built His and the Nation's Prosperity. Uh, Tell us, the the publisher, if you will, anything else you wanted to bring up? Oh, the publisher is DeCapo Press, and it's available on Amazon.com, and the title is First Entrepreneur. Bob Cudmore at the American Revolution in the uh, Mohawk Valley Conference. We're talking with uh, J.L. Bell, author of the book The Road to Concord. You're you're talking about stolen or uh, stolen cannon or misappropriated cannons or pieces of artillery uh, as the revolution's starting? Yes, exactly. Uh, the Massachusetts militia had a number of units that, uh, companies that had cannon, and uh, this was in 1774, uh, before the Revolutionary War started, and in September of that year, first the royal governor, General Thomas Gage, and then the locals began to grab uh, as many cannon as they could to keep control of those weapons and then to prepare those weapons uh, on the uh, provincial side to use against the royal government. So there was what I call an arms race in Massachusetts and then in New England as each side raced, literally in some cases raced to get uh, a hold of these cannon uh, to hide them or to, uh, in the British case, to take them into uh, the army camps where the locals could no longer uh, get a hold of them at all. I seem to recall in your uh, talk, you would, uh, some school teacher or something had had the uh, cannons hidden, and he said he was lame, or, and he put his foot on it to rest. Uh, this was uh, one of the most detailed uh, events during this competition. Uh, a 
uh, in Boston, there was a militia armory or what they called gun house right next to a school. And the patriots who were part of the unit that used those cannon, they didn't want to give them up. So they broke into their own gun house, moved the cannon into the neighboring school, put them into the firewood box, covered them up with firewood, and then left. And when the British Army came to look for those cannon, uh, reportedly an officer peeked into the school. By that point, there were about 200 boys working on their writing and arithmetic. There was the schoolmaster up at the front, and he had a bandage on his foot, and the foot was sitting on the firewood box, and the British officer was too polite to ask him to move it so he could look inside the box. Uh, we're talking with J.L. Bell, uh, The Road to Concord, How Four Stolen Cannon Ignited the Revolutionary War. I, I also recall you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that after all this to-do about these cannons, um, th- they really weren't that valuable in the in the war. That's true. Uh, these uh, cannon, the four cannon at the uh, heart of this story, uh, were they were brass, so that made them stand out in the uh, provincial armory, and that uh, helped me track them, but uh, they were two-pounders and three-pounders, meant, which meant that they uh, could shoot cannonballs of two pounds or three pounds. And cannons up at that time were up to uh, six-pounders, 18-pounders, 24-pounders. So when the war actually started, these turned out to be pretty dinky little cannon. They certainly weren't helpful in the first campaign, which was a siege against Boston, where you really needed the very big guns to uh, throw balls a very long way and to do real damage. Uh, These uh, smaller guns were better on a battlefield, but really their value uh, was in training. That's what they had been given to the militia militia, uh, artillery regiments for. Well, not to get detour, but I do, do know part of the was a, part of the story of uh, the siege of Boston is that they brought the uh, Patriots uh, brought cannons from Ticonderoga uh, over there. Yes, that's that is the New York connection. Um, now, uh, from the very beginning, when Benedict Arnold went to the Massachusetts Provincial Congress and suggested uh, sending himself out to uh, Crown Point and Fort Ticonderoga to take those positions, one of the uh, benefits he suggested was that they would be able to take the cannon from those sites and bring them back to Boston. Uh, Then nothing happened with those. There was the invasion of Canada, and I think the Massachusetts people were expecting perhaps the New Yorkers would want to use those cannon in Canada. After that invasion took place, well, there suddenly those guns were free, and George Washington sent uh, his new colonel of artillery, so new that he hadn't even received his commission yet, Henry Knox, to New York to convince the New Yorkers to allow him to go all the way up to Lake Champlain uh, and bring back many of those heavy guns, which he did over the winter of 1775-76. It is often said that the American army around Boston had no cannon before Henry Knox brought back uh, those guns, but in fact they did have cannon. They even had some very large cannon, uh, but they needed more, and that's what Knox provided. between those extra cannon and a better supply of gunpowder, they finally got enough firepower to make the British leave a little early. J.L. Bell is with us, uh, and you're, uh, you live in Massachusetts. And um, wh- what is your interest in history? What are your other projects in history, your other interests? Um, I do a lot of writing about the Revolutionary War in New England for my website, boston1775.net. 
and some of the things which interest me most are the experiences of children during the 10 years leading up to the Revolutionary War. We know that there were boys protesting against the Stamp Act on the very first day of Stamp Act protests in Boston, August 14, 1765. One of the organizers talks about 200 boys marching around with a flag. And uh, we know that uh, there are, for instance, a very nice uh, set of letters from a girl named Anna Green Winslow, which talks about learning the difference between Tories and Whigs. And so seeing those experiences in the generation of people who, when the war started 10 years uh, later, they were the fighting men. They were the men who actually were on the front lines. Well, what had been, what had politicized them to become... Uh, so committed to the revolution. That's one of the questions that has most interested me. So I've done a lot of papers and and, uh, chapters and books about that. Do you uh, seek a younger audience as well? Uh, I started uh, revolutionary war research with the the thought of doing uh, a novel for young readers, and that uh, has never uh, come about. Well, not that novel. Another novel happened. Uh, I'm also working on some other projects for that. Some of my early articles were for uh, children's magazines. So I do, uh, I do keep those readers in mind. But uh, lately, uh, most of my publications have been on, not only for adults, but uh, a bit on the scholarly side, even. <laughs> Uh, J.L. Bell, The Road to Concord, and uh, that book, I understand, is published by the, the, the Journal of the American Revolution, and we're going to be speaking with Don Hagas from, from that operation. How did you get involved with that? I knew Don from uh, New England Revolutionary War Research, and uh, when Todd Anderlich, uh, who was the man who uh, founded the Journal of the, Re- the American Revolution, his previous project was uh reporting the Revolutionary War, uh, which was a collection of articles about various um, milestone moments in the Revolution uh, as they were reported in newspapers and then analyzed with more detail and more uh, 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 a a wider perspective looking back. Uh, And Todd recruited a bunch of us to write articles. I wrote articles in that book on the powder alarm and the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Um, And from that, Todd uh, grew the uh, Journal of the American Revolution, and he went to Don uh, and to Hugh Harrington uh, uh, as uh, the first editors, Uh, but he also uh, asked me to uh, start contributing articles, which I have. Uh, And then when they decided to move from collections of articles to uh, actual books, uh, he asked me, uh, did I have any story which I'd been meaning to tell for a while and could be short uh, or not too long, uh, substantive, a story that hadn't been told before. And I said, well, actually, I've got this thing that I've been working on since 2001, Todd. Are you going to publish it for me? <laughs> and so it worked out very nicely. I had uh, the, the solid basis of this story. I had done a great deal of research and a great deal more research to try to fill in the holes, and it all worked out nicely. J.L. Bell, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Bob Cutmore at the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference. And uh, we uh, heard from a previous guest about uh, the Journal of the American Revolution. And it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Don Hagist from the Journal. Actually, I, I don't even know what your title is of the Journal. 
Oh, I am an editor of the Journal of the American Revolution. I remember we talked with you last year. You presented at this uh, conference, I believe, or or, or maybe I uh, came across you another way. But you've been on the podcast before, I believe, talking, I hope I got the right person, about the uh, photographs of revolutionary soldiers. That's exactly right, yes. I'm uh, also a historian and writer myself. I've published a number of books. And although my core field of study is British soldiers who served in the American Revolution, the focus is really on individual people and what their roles were. There's plenty of people who study the senior officers and the politicians and the commanders and the leaders, so I try to study the common folk who are actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, this year... um uh, Don, you, you did um, you, uh, a speech at the banquet that they had as part of the conference and talking about the Journal of the American Revolution. But uh, before that, uh, you introduced one of the speakers. And uh, as I, I did, I was doing Facebook posts during the, during the conference said that, you know, that you brought down the house because you introduced uh, Todd Braestead, whose book is Grand Forage, 1778, The Battleground Around New York City. Um, this is, of course, during the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution uh, published this book. And so I, I asked you, and I know it's difficult because, you know, that you were there before an adoring crowd and you were, you were doing this and there was a lot of energy that built. But if, And you, had made, kept, you brought up the idea of Hamilton, you know, the, the Broadway musical, which is well-known. It's a rap musical about the American Revolution or about the founding fathers. So what do you think? Think you can do the rap that you did about Todd Braestead and Grand Forage? Sure, I can give it a try. And the, the background here is that Todd Braestead and I have been friends since we were teenagers. We've been working together very closely for a long time on research. So when I had the opportunity to introduce his book, I decided we might as well try to little make it fun. Okay. So it went something like this. Uh, it said, in referring to the circumstances of his book, I said, uh, the British under Clinton were encamped in New York City and an army under Washington encamped in the vicinity was hoping that a French fleet would bring about a retreat but that wasn't their intention. Did I mention that the British were entrenched? They weren't going to let the French in. But to winter in New York, the British Army needed forage, so they sent out Lord Cornwallis with regulars and Tories and Rangers and Jaegers and cavalry with sabers. With all those troops out marching, almost anything could happen, like a massacre at Tappan. A woman went out spying. She was trying to get intel without dying, and a British peace commission on a mission for congressional submission couldn't even get a meeting or a greeting, and they went away defeated. Indians from Stockbridge were defeated north of Kingsbridge, and a Scottish bro named Ferguson got nasty with Pulaski at Egg Harbor in New Jersey. It's all in this book by the authority on Tories, so open up your minds. Let Mr. Braestead tell the story. (laughs) That is great. My gosh. And, you know, know, the one thing that stands out to me is, because watching Todd Braestead's uh, talk, um, you know, I come from Amsterdam, New York, and I grew up in a Polish neighborhood, and I grew up on Pulaski Street, and where we have a Pulaski Bridge, and I was kind of sad to see that uh, Casimir Pulaski's forces didn't do too well here. Uh, yeah, sadly, it's a, Pulaski was roughly handled during the American Revolution, and he's, he's lauded as a hero, as are most of the foreign officers who came to support the American cause, and that was a heroic thing to do. It didn't mean that they all 
performed well in war. And when I say performed, that's not a reflection on their capabilities. The fortunes of war don't always treat talented individuals well. So Pulaski, as revered as he is, uh, he didn't really have a good career during the American Revolution. <laughs> well, let me ask you about the Journal of the American Revolution. You gave a really a very, you're a very good public speaker. You gave a very stirring speech uh, about it at uh, the banquet to this uh, uh, convention. This is an online production? It is. The Journal of the American Revolution is a web magazine. Now, that's sort of a loose definition because we're accustomed to talking about blogs and websites. But when we call it a web magazine, we're trying to convey that it's not just the personal writings of a single person and it's not a forum to, for anyone to publish anything. Rather, it has articles by subject matter experts and they're all well-referenced, footnoted articles, just as you'd see in a good quality history magazine. It's just that we publish them on the web. This has the wonderful advantage that they're available worldwide. There's no subscription required. It's all absolutely free. And it can all be found by searching for it. So many of our readers find the articles not because they open up the magazine every day, but because they're doing web searches on information about a given topic. They can find it. Everything we've always published remains available. It's just a wonderful forum for getting good quality history information out to the world. And here at the Historian's Podcast, we know full well how difficult it is to monetize this, as you say. I mean, I, I basically seek donations, and if one of these days they'll try to figure out a grant, but I'm just one person, and, you know, I'm semi-retired, and we just do this. But how, how do you support uh, the journal? Well, it's quite a challenge, as you said. Um, we say that this thing is absolutely free to all, but it's not free to publish this or to have it hosted. We, we get over a million readers a year, and uh, it's not cheap to support a, a web platform that does that. So we take advertising. Uh, we take donations. We have a what we call our swag shop, mm -hmm. so you can buy T-shirts. I thought that was an idea. Maybe I'll try that. <laughs> it's worth a try. Everybody would want a Bob Cutmore T-shirt, right? Who would not want that? Yeah. Amsterdam, best place on earth, that sort of thing. Yeah, so we're always looking for creative ways to find ways to get funding that doesn't cheapen our brand. We still want to have a nice, respectable uh brand that's courteous to our readers. We don't want to jam things down their throats, so we don't take big mass market advertisements. We look for advertisers for things like this conference on the American Revolution. That's exactly the kind of thing that people who read our content want to see and are truly interested in. So that's the kind of advertiser we look to attract. And I must say, I was pleased that I had several people at the conference tell me that they listened to the podcast. So, I mean, this online stuff, I guess there's a future in it. Uh, there is. It's a growing future. I often say that the Internet is like the most amazing library the world has ever had, but it has no card catalog yet. And there's no predictability about what the content is, but there's a whole lot of stuff out there. But as, as culturally 
we all adapt to it. New generations grow up with it. It will become, I think, more orderly and more organized and hopefully still equally diverse. Well, since we're online, I mean, people have probably done it already once they heard you talking about it. But just to find out about it, you Google Journal of the American Revolution? Yes, the actual URL is allthingsliberty.com, with no spaces or punctuation or anything, allthingsliberty.com. But if you just do a Google search for Journal of the American Revolution, you'll find us that way, too. Well, Don Hagerst, I thank you for talking with us. Thank you very much. This is Bob Cudmore. We'll do one more future episode with guests from this year's American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference. The conference will be held again next year from June 8th through June 11th of 2017. We welcome contributions so we can continue producing the Historian's Podcast. Please donate online at GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2016. Or send a check made out to Bob Cutmore to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. This program is recorded at Dave Green's East Line Studio in New York's southern Saratoga County.